Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. You are tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered. This podcast comes to you every Tuesday morning. Thank you for your support and for being part of the show. This show, today's show, is about clinical trials, randomized controlled trials, the good, bad, and the ugly about randomized controlled trials. We all know that there are no perfect studies out there, but we still have to execute on patient care and on managing patients despite the lack of perfect science. And randomized control trials have been obviously hypothesized to be the gold standard of deciding on how to treat patients. And certainly this is true, but they're not for the faint of heart. They are not easy to design, to fund, to execute, to complete, and to publish. And to go through the issues pertaining to randomized control trials, the complexity of these studies, and what are we going to do about these studies? I have asked Dr. Vincent Rajkumar, professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic, an award-renowned myeloma expert to join me on Healthcare Unfiltered and to tell us about randomized control trials. If anyone knows about clinical trials and the randomized design of these studies and the funding, it's going to be Vincent because he has ran a lot of these studies and published a lot of these studies and not all of the trials were easy to, to do. So I really wanted to delve deep into these uh, randomized controlled trials and just to understand better how we design them and more importantly, the complexity of these studies. I hope you enjoy uh, listening to Dr. Raj Kumar about randomized controlled trials and, 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 and all of the nuances of these studies. Before I air the episode, I'd like you to hopefully subscribe to the show, like the show, write a brief review. By writing a brief review on Apple Podcasts or on any other podcast outlet, you will make the show easier to find and easier to rate. You can also watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You also can visit my website at www.shadinabhan.com and you can follow me on Twitter at shadinabhan or Instagram, shadi underscore healthcare unfiltered. Without further ado, Dr. Vincent Rajkumar on Healthcare Unfiltered, talking randomized controlled trials. Okay, well, here we are, one of my favorite and frequent guests on Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm always grateful to have Vincent Rajkumar on, on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast because I know how busy you are, Vincent, and, and taking time of your busy schedule is always a, a privilege and an honor. So thank you so much. But um, you, I wanted to introduce yourself to, to listeners. Um, the one uh, commentary I have is we're not talking anything COVID or pandemic, which is more fun to talk about, go back and talking about trials and science and oncology and, and, and other things. So, um, you know, few folks out there don't uh, know you and don't know what you do. Um, tell us a little bit about, uh, about you. And um, I'll have to say, actually, I, I want to put a, a link 
uh, in the podcast notes to one of the, my favorite, I think it was a Lancet article, talked about your journey and how you got uh, where you are. I think a lot of folks will enjoy reading this. All right, free flow, tell us who you are. Well, Chaddy, thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure to talk to you. I love the Healthcare Unfiltered broadcast and uh, the amazing guests you have and the topics you cover. I work uh, in the myeloma field at Mayo Clinic, and I've been here for oh more than 25 years. And um, I do primarily research on myeloma, and I cover clinical trials, epidemiologic studies, as well as laboratory studies. And I've been funded throughout by the NIH. And um, I also chair the Myeloma Committee for the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group. And I edit the Blood Cancer Journal, along with Ayelu Teferi. What's your involvement, uh, Vincent, with the International Myeloma Foundation and the, um, a, lot, the couple of foundations that are pretty broad, and I, I always see you involved with them. How, how, how did this come about, and what's your involvement with them? So I'm also on the board of directors of the International Myeloma Foundation, and uh, I co-chair the International Myeloma Working Group with uh, Brian Dury. So that has about 250 to 300 myeloma researchers from around the world. And we do both uh, uh, consensus statements and guidelines in terms of like, you know, whether how is myeloma defined, how is it staged, what's the response criteria that's used, to also research projects where we can bring people from around the world together to work on a question. So that's been a privilege and an honor to do that. And uh, I've been doing that for a long time now. I mean, today's topic, Vincent, is we're going to talk a little bit in general about randomized control trials. I mean, you know, the, the good, bad, and ugly. Um, but b- before, I, before I, I do that, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed in the training programs where I really don't feel fellows, maybe things have changed since I was a fellow, but fellows never really got primers in designing clinical trials, in the nuances of clinical trials, at least when I was a fellow, which was more than two decades ago. But um, do you feel that fellows in training currently, by the time when they finish their fellowship, are they able to understand the design, the nuances, the pitfalls, the shortcomings, um, or do you feel we could do a better job in training them and teaching them? So, you know, I don't know how I can comment on that, having not been involved with many fellowship programs other than the one at Mayo. Uh, I trained at Mayo, and um, I think everything depends on how the fellowship program is structured. Mayo has a very clinically oriented uh, program, and it's also longer than the other programs. It's a four-year program, and I did all four years. And by the time I was done with my fellowship, I had published several clinical trials three of three clinical trials. Uh, I had uh, started trials that I didn't finish, someone else finished, but I got a very good understanding of how to design a trial, how to run a trial, how to get one approved. So that um, I finished fellowship in 1999. And in 2000, I was leading a randomized control trial for ECOG, which led eventually to the approval of thalidomide. So that's just one year out of fellowship. So I owe a lot to the amount of stuff I learned during fellowship. I think 
to be a successful clinical trialist, you have to start very early because it takes a long, long time. And uh, it depends on the fellowship program. And I, I do agree with you that fellowship programs um, uh, should um, offer the opportunity for fellows to design and run trials. Now, things are complicated now because it takes a much longer time to get a trial up and running. Uh, the approval process is longer. So a fellow who starts a trial right now is very unlikely to see it finished unless they stay on staff at the same institution. Mm. So the somebody else is going to take the credit, but yeah. they would at least get the training on how to write and get a trial up and running. And who would you consider your your mentors? Is Bob Kyle, am I, are these folks, I mean, the, the, the giants in myeloma back in the day or? Yeah, when, when, when I trained at Mayo, um, Bob was very much active and uh, was very influential in my career and probably my primary mentor. Bob, uh, however, didn't do that many clinical trials at the time I was uh, training. So I did a lot of what I gained from him was all of the epidemiologic studies the racial disparities, the prevalence of MGUS, the progression of MGUS, the biomarkers. Um, for clinical trials per se, I think the people who really inspired me and um, helped me get the trials up and running were partly in the solid tumor field. I did a lot of trials in brain tumors um, before I went on to be a myeloma investigator. So Jan Buckner, who later on became the head of the NCCTG, uh, he was my primary mentor in terms of how to design and run a clinical trial. I did a, like four or five brain tumor trials with him. Um, another person was Tom Witzig, uh, who I did a couple of uh, phase, th phase two and phase three trials with, and Maury Gertz. I think these people were very influential in, in helping me you know, understand what is the process for doing a clinical trial and getting it uh, successfully completed and published. I did not know that about brain tumors in you. This is a, this is a new thing I learned about you today. So let's start by, you know, randomized control trials. Um, I want to, my first question to you is looking at the type of randomized control trials. And then does getting, is getting funding depend, dependent on the type of randomized control? When you look at randomized control trial, is it just, one way, like experimental arm, control arm, and you try to search for somebody to pay money for the experimental arm. Take us through the process and the type of studies we're talking about. So therapeutic randomized controlled trials, I mean, you can classify them in many ways, but you know, the scientific way is to see if it was a uh, single blind or a double blind, is it an open label or a placebo controlled trial? Um, those things are technically important. Then there is the way of looking at randomized controlled trials where you see what is the funding source. Um, randomized controlled trials today cost a lot of money, and uh, most of the randomized controlled trials in oncology uh, are funded by pharma. Um, and those can come in two categories. One is pharma-funded and pharma-run trials, where they are the stat center. And then investigator-initiated trials where pharma is providing funding. So the pharma-funded trials are a big chunk of the RCT portfolio. And then there's public funding, 
in the US it'll be NIH funded trials, usually run through cooperative groups. And then there might be smaller trials which are single institution or uh, philanthropy funded, but those are very small proportions. So you can look at randomized trials basically, basically based on the funding source. You can also look at randomized trials in terms of what is the purpose of this trial, which is usually very different than what is the primary aim and the secondary aim. But that, those are technical things. But the purpose of the trial, which is usually not written out in a protocol, is basically why are we doing this trial? Are we trying to get a new drug approved? Are we trying to get a new indication for an existing drug? Are we trying to find what is the best treatment, like comparing two different treatments, both of which are on the market? Or are we trying to make a strategic difference? Like, you know, should myeloma therapy be indefinite or can we stop it and see how it goes? Or should we do it through MRD directed therapy or should we not? Um, should we try to cure it or just control it? Those are strategic questions. So you can look at randomized trials based on what is the purpose of this trial? which unfortunately is not well known, except for the PI and who's the fun, whoever the funder is. So I think it's a, I think it's, it's a complicated set of uh, topics here. And you, depending on how you look at it, things would be different. I am of the firm view that randomized control trials are the gold standard and are critical for most um, important decisions. But because of the time it takes, the cost, the, um, the various barriers we have, the limitations of them, and the number of questions we need to answer in clinical medicine versus the number of how much of time and money we have, we have to pick and choose which, where we do one and where we won't be able to do it. That's just the reality. You know, I mean, I am... I've said that actually many times that uh, I wish we can answer everything with a randomized control trial, but we can't. In fact, I could tell you, Vincent, that it's part of the reason I became a fan of real-world evidence and, and registry data, and, and um, despite their limitations, but I really feel that you can, you can in addition to finding some hypothesis-generating questions, you can sometimes answer certain questions um, through real-world uh, data without RCTs, but you have to be very selective. You can't answer everything. So I like how you framed it. We can, we can um, uh, separate clinical trials, randomized control trials, based on the funding source. Okay, so... Let's start with first funding source. You said sometimes the government funds clinical trial. Are there specific trials that the government would fund? And how easy is that? So, you know, and again, this is why it's, it's important to know the process and things involved. I've been fortunate that I have been PI of industry-funded, industry-run trial, randomized trial, industry-funded but investigator-initiated trial, NIH funded through my R01 grant, just straight through NIH to Mayo, to me, as well as cooperative group trials where NIH funds ECOG and then ECOG funds the trial. That's perfect. So, take, us, take us through each one. So, and the, and the process is quite different. Um, if, for example, um, for, uh, I'll give you a, real world examples. Okay, so Ixazimib, 
it's a new proteasome inhibitor. I worked with Takeda on the design of the trial, how to do it. And so I was PI of the Exazomib double blind randomized control trials for maintenance and for frontline therapy. And those both have been, both of those have been published. But there, pharma is the data center. Pharma funds these trials. These trials are extraordinarily expensive because they are regulatory motive. They have to go to the FDA. So you cannot just audit the trial to make sure everything is okay. You have to monitor the trial, every patient. That's why all these monitors come multiple times to each center to actually see everything is going correctly according to the way the protocol says. The PI's role there is not as hard because I don't have to fight to get it approved. Because as long as Pharma and I agree on the design, the trial's up and running because the funder is in place and we just have to make sure that the FDA is okay with the design and then you're up and running. And you recruit fast because Pharma has more dollars so you can open the trial worldwide. You can open and close within a few months. So I've done that. There are trials where you say, you know, I have this idea, but I don't think any pharmaceutical company is interested. Plus, I want to do it on my own. Um, so I wrote an R01 grant. So there I have to first tell the NIH reviewers, I would like to do this trial and you need to fund me. And that's usually revolving around a concept. Like, should we treat smoldering myeloma or not? So thalidomide versus nothing. So that's the trial I did, Thalzomeda versus Zometa. The Zometa was just for, um, you know, bone strengthening, but it was really to see whether thalidomide was useful in smoldering myeloma. And the hypothesis was early therapy. So you write the R01 grant, you get it approved. You have to get a good score. You get the funding. Then you go to Mayo and say, I need IRB approval for this phase three trial that I've written. And here's the money for it that I got from NIH. Because without money, they won't let me open. I need a statistician. I need the monitors. I need, you know, make sure that the trial goes on for 10 years. Who's going to pay for all of that? The lab studies, everything. So that's another way of doing it, but that's incredibly hard. I would say the NIH funds very, very few randomized control trials through R01 grants. And then the- Do they usually fund uh, more basic science stuff, R01s? Yeah, they, usually, they usually fund basic science, translational, even clinical trials, phase one and two, but a randomized trial that NIH actually funds to run, I think it'll be very rare. I was lucky to do it, um, but in those days it didn't cost as much. I think, I don't think I'll be able to get that kind of budget now. And then finally, the cooperative group trials where you, um, there's a certain amount of money that NIH has to do important trials for the that drug companies won't do. Like drug companies will do, um, say, DERA RD versus RD, but DERA drug companies won't do a VRD versus KRD because both companies think their regimens are good. Those are the studies only cooperative groups would do. And for that, the process is very hard because there are four cooperative groups in the US. And um, we have a steering committee for each disease group. So if I have an idea for a phase three trial, I have to first get it approved through ECOG to make sure that it fits in with ECOG's priorities. Then we go to the myeloma steering committee where members of the other groups are there and other investigators outside of the cooperative groups. And they have to like it and they have to agree with the design. Then it goes to CTEP, which 
who has to see whether of all the trials we should do, is this really one that we are going to spend money on? And then they may like it or not. And then if they like it, then we open the trial and then you have to be lucky it accrues because we have opened trials where, you know, months go by and nobody's accruing. Where, where do you get the funding for that though, once you open it? NIH, NIH is giving ECOG the money and allowing ECOG to decide, um, you know, which of the many, many trials should you pursue? So what happens with each of these is that if I were to grade it, like, you know, on the one hand is the pharma funded trial and then and the, on, the, on the other side is the NIH funded trial. The pharma funded trial funding is plenty. The approval process is easy because there's very few people who can have veto say. And the problem is pharma will control the design. Pharma will get the stats. And they have a real reason why they're doing the trial, usually to get a drug on the market or to get a new drug approval, new, new drug, new indication for an existing drug. NIH trials, you know, you can design whatever you think is the best question that you want to ask for the field. It doesn't have to be a, to get a new drug approved. It might be a strategic question, a tactical question for the disease. But the funding is limited and you're competing with so many other questions for a small part of money. And um, your approval process is much more trickier because you have so many people who are looking at many, many other competing priorities, and they have to decide whether yours is the right one. So, but, but even in the, in the first one, so the pharma is sponsoring the trial and they're funding the money and they are integrated in the design. I mean, if you think the design is flawed, uh, I mean, you're the myeloma expert, and if every myeloma expert, you know, says, yeah, I mean, that design is flawed, I mean, you can push back, no? I mean, I'm sure this, is, this has happened before where somebody probably proposed a design to you and he said, well, no, I mean, I don't think that's right. Of course. And that's where the whole role of, like, you know, trying to understand what is the question that we are trying to answer comes in. And what might look to an outsider like a design that was not right may look to the investigators and the pharma company as a perfectly appropriate design for the situation we find ourselves in. And unless you are privy to, privy to those, it'll be very hard for you to understand what is it, why did you do this design? I'll give you an example. We all knew palmalidomide was effective, but to get palmalidomide approved and available to US patients, we needed to get a randomized controlled trial up and running. And the FDA is ready to approve the drug on a phase two, but they do need a phase three design to go with it. And we need, and on the other hand, EU, they want the full trial to be phase three. So with those questions in mind, Investigators have to decide, like, you know, what would be the design that will get us the drug approved fastest? Because none of the investigators were really doubting that the drug worked. So if you were to do a very complicated design, you know that you'll push the drug approval by another two years. So for that two years, no one's going to have access to that drug. That's the other side that we have to always worry about. And same thing with DARA. Same thing with carfilzomib or bortezomib. All of these drugs were approved on phase two. But that's that makes the drug available only to Americans. So how do we, when I, I know DARA works, we can save lives, bortezomib works, 
how do we as investigators make sure that everybody else around the world has access to the drug? So we, we pick designs that sometimes for other people may not look correct, but it is actually correct for the purpose that we are trying to do. But your question is, if the design is truly flawed, like we think, I think it is flawed, I will push back. And we have pushed back and said like, no, we are not going to do that. And they have almost always the companies are okay with that. When we have all pushed back, many, many instances where I've been in meetings where together collectively the myeloma community has, has basically vetoed a particular design. So, so when you when you say that some of these newer drugs were approved as a based on phase twos, these are the accelerated approval pathway. Yep. Now, in the accelerated approval pathway, uh, usually you're supposed to have some post marketing studies to confirm the findings in the in, in the accelerated pathway. Do you um, are you usually involved in this as well? After the drug is approved, do you participate in the post marketing studies or? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, it's not just post marketing studies, you have to actually do the phase three. Yeah. So for example, uh, let's take daratumumab. Okay, when, when you have um, patients with relapse refractory myeloma who have failed everything, bortezomib doesn't work, lenalidomide doesn't work, dex, thalidomide, alkylators, nothing works. They are compassionate, you compassionate, you know, basically palliative supportive care mode. In that setting, when you give DARA and you find in a phase one and a phase two trial that a third of the patients are getting a very, very nice response, and then their symptoms are getting better, and then they are going out for a year or two without any progression. What do you as investigator think? You think, wow, we have a really active drug. This drug needs to be available to patients. We can verify if it really works or not, but the pretest probability is very high that, that, that this drug actually works. Globally, the situation is, other than the FDA, most other countries will not agree with us. So in the EU or in, in Asia or any other, other countries, they won't say we'll get data on the market based on your small 100 patient US study. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. they will need a proper phase three trial. Show us improvement in PFS or survival in a proper phase three trial. In the US, the FDA recognizing that we could ask for a proper phase three trial, but that means for the next two years, patients with myeloma will continue to die without having access to data. And so between approving the drug and then finding out if, if what we did was correct two years from now, is that the best thing? Or shall we not approve it and wait for two years till they finish their phase three? That's the dilemma that the FDA faces. Yeah. So it's not just post-marketing studies. It's um, you are supposed to do an actual phase three trial and show the FDA that they what, what, that what they approved on an accelerated approval does indeed work. So if I give you the example of daratumumab, daratumumab was approved in the US based on a single arm phase two trial. And the reason it was approved was because in patients who had no other alternatives, it worked a third of the time with a 50% drop in the paraprotein and patients stayed 
in good remission for a long period of time. So most of us in the myeloma field were convinced that this drug actually works. There was really no doubt in our mind. So from the FDA standpoint, what they could do is they have two choices. They can go ahead and approve the drug based on what we as the investigators are telling them and based on what we are, what we are demonstrating in the phase two, in which case patients have access to the drug today. Or they can say, you show us the randomized phase three. If they choose, show us the randomized phase three, then for two years or three years, patients with myeloma won't have access to that treatment. And there would be many patients losing their lives who could have been saved with DARA. So this is the dilemma. In the US, the FDA is happy with the accelerated approval pathway and then we'll show the phase three results subsequently. In the EU and in other countries, in Asia and others, they are not going to approve a drug based on phase two. They need the phase three. So when, when the drug company faces this problem, what they have to decide is we need the phase three to satisfy the FDA requirement. We need the phase three to get the drug on the market in Europe and Asia. So you design the phase threes, and that's what happened with Pollux and Castor. And when the phase threes come, the drugs get approved in the rest of the world. And the FDA also gives a full approval because whatever they did on accelerated approval is, is um, confirmed. Now it goes back to type one and type two error. The FDA has done accelerated approval for myeloma many, many times. Lenalidomide, pomalidomide, um, botezomib, daratumumab, carfilzomib, all of these were approved accelerated approval. All of them, the phase three subsequently showed that what they, what they did was the right decision. And because they did the accelerated approval, patients could have access to that, those treatments for years before people in Europe and other countries could. So that's all very good. But when you do that, there are chances that you might approve a drug that later on doesn't pan out, like it happened with melflufen. That's a risk that we are willing to take. Yeah, I think that's that's you just literally said the statement I was going to say. You 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 stole this from my mouth, which is um, I think that by accelerating the approvals, you do risk the possibility of approving drugs that they may not be as effective as you thought they were, and in fact, they could hurt people. They could hurt patients. Um, so tell me. I mean, when you say that's a risk that we are willing to take, is it because it's going to help advance the field? Is it because pre pre like pre approval probability based on preclinical data? Based on, how, how is it like? Is there a scenario where you say that's a risk we are not willing to take in the X-ray approval pathway versus a risk that you're willing to take? And and is there a you know? I mean. I'm not the patient, you're not the patient. So uh, how do we incorporate patient's voice in this? Because they're really the ones taking the risk. You're not taking it and I'm not taking it. Absolutely. So it really depends on the disease type and the type of endpoints that you, you think are reliable. So with myeloma, we are pretty sure that if you have a 
M protein that goes from three grams to zero, it has to do that only with an active drug. It cannot do that with an inactive drug, okay? So we are, con we are sure of the biomarker, we are sure of, of that. And we're also sure that nine out of 10 times that patients who respond are going to do better than if you if you didn't see uh, if you didn't get a response so in this field for the type of track record and pretest probability this is a good pathway even then we've had mistakes happen with melflufen we've had mistakes happen with um uh where you know it didn't get approved but you know we had the venetoclax situation where PFS was longer, but overall survival was not. So mistakes can happen, and we are aware of that. It may be, it may not be the same in solid tumors. If you have a new drug and you really don't have a solid uh, pretest probability as, uh, on on what to make out of the response, or the depth of response, or the extent of the response, you cannot be as confident as I am with myeloma. So I really think it depends on the investigators, and this is why. It's important for both pharma and the regulators to listen to the investigators in terms of what we are seeing on phase two. Is this believable? Is it translate? Will it likely translate to a uh, success on phase three? Vincent, one, one of the most puzzling things to me, and I'm sure to a lot of listeners and viewers, is that we know there are, at any given time, there are lots of clinical trials in a particular disease that are ongoing. You know, Maybe in some diseases fewer than others because the disease is not as common, right? I mean, breast cancer, you're gonna have more than myeloma. But these trials are ongoing at the same time. And some of these could be three, four randomized controlled trials at the same time. And they will read at different times. So, what happens, you are designing a clinical trial, you're enrolling on that clinical trial, and then another study, randomized controlled trial that is ran in Europe, in Asia, in wherever it is, that reads out, that shows an output or a result that nullifies the control arm that you're working on in your current clinical trial. I mean, you had hypothesized that X is the control arm and you're comparing Y to X. There's a trial going on in Asia that's comparing Z to X and Z now is superior to X. Well, now you comparing Y to X makes no sense. You need to compare Y to Z. How do you reconcile this? It drives me crazy. It drives a lot of patients crazy, families crazy, and other investigators crazy. And, and what do you do in situations like this? Yeah, I think you just described a very common problem that we have faced and I have faced it goes back to why are you doing the trial? Okay, so take DARA. So DARA to Mumab Lendex compared to Lendex, we're doing the trial. At the same time, some other company is doing Carfilzomib Lendex versus Lendex. Some other company is doing Ixazomib Lendex versus Lendex. And another one is doing Elotuzumab Lendex versus Lendex. All in relapse myeloma, all in one to three prior regimens. Okay. You go back to the purpose of the trial. The purpose of each of these trials is really to get a drug that is not yet on the market approved. 
If DARA Lendex is better than Lendex, it just means that DARA works in myeloma. It doesn't mean that it's the best. It just means that this drug is effective in myeloma. Where it'll work, how it'll work is, is something that we have to decide later. So um, the fact that Carfilzomib Lendex versus Lendex read out before that doesn't change anything because that trial showed that carfilzomib works. The ELO trial shows that ELO works. The exazomib trial shows that exazomib works. So now we have four options for myeloma, and then we can figure out how to use these four the best way we can. The fact that one read out doesn't affect the other. And because we are, we literally at that point in time have none of these four for any patient. They're all investigational drugs. They all have to get approved. So that's the most common scenario where the drugs are not on the market and we're all each doing a drug trial just to get it on the market. Sometimes what happens is that a trial like, you know, I'll take DARA again. So DARA RD versus RD is going on for frontline. It's already myeloma frontline in the US is VRD. So why are they doing DARA RD versus RD? Or maybe they started off thinking RD is the correct control, but midway through the trial, VRD became standard of care. Right. right. Now they're doing DARA RD versus RD and everybody else is using VRD. How does this even fit in? And those raise challenging questions. And I'm sure what happens with these trials when that happens is literally every big result that comes in where the IRB question is, is there anything in the literature that affects the risks or benefits to the patients that all investigators have to answer truthfully? Okay. And most of the time, what happens is that the accrual to a trial is either already completed or is going on in a country where whatever is proven the other way, even is just simply not a reality. So, VRD, for example, was, has not been approved even in the US even now for frontline. It's just because Vincent's using VRD for frontline doesn't make it the stand, or just because I say it's the standard of care doesn't mean that Poland would say VRD is the standard of care or France would say VRD is the standard of care. Okay, so what happens is all the investigators have to understand like, if the trial was not there, what would we be doing for our patients in our country? Forget that the US could do VRD. Mm -hmm. If you could only do MPT or VMP or RD, then you will say, you know, that study that, that's currently going on is still fine. And I will just let my patients know that, you know, this other trial result came out. So I think like I told you, in the new drug approval scenario, most of the time it doesn't matter because we need all the four of the all all of the drugs as many as we can. Uh, if when you're trying to get a new indication, it does matter, and people have to be truthful that you know in your country that it actually. I think I think I think what you mentioned is actually pretty interesting because you're alluding to the um, differences in standard of care between countries. And, and across the globe. And I think certainly the standard of care differs based on drug availability. But one of the most common issues that come up, come up is that 
Okay, well, the drug, the, the, the trial is being ran globally. Uh, and because of that, we are willing to have a control arm that is more aligned across the globe, not a US-based control arm, because we want to make that available to countries outside of the US. But then when the trial reads out and the new regimen is actually is available, that new regimen is not actually available for the people around the globe. It becomes more available to the US because, you know, basically, so, so the patients outside of the US essentially were enrolled on that trial with the idea to help the drug company get the regimen approved. But when it's approved, the new regimen, these new drugs are not available to these patients in the other countries. They become available in the US because of how big the market is and because the US doesn't have much of a regulation over drug pricing. You know what I'm trying to say? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, this is not a science problem. It is more of a way drug pricing is in the US versus other countries. In the US, a drug can be priced as long as the FDA is approved based on what pharma thinks it's worth. In other countries, um, pharma has to negotiate with health authorities to determine a fair price for this new drug that just showed value. And what happens is, even though the trial is run across the globe and the drug is successful, the drug almost always first, first becomes available in the US because they don't have to go through the second step. Yeah. So in every country, approval is one of two steps. There's the approval, and then there's the pricing negotiation. So regulatory approval just means that the drug is shown benefit. Then there's the health authorities who negotiate about the value that the drug offers and whether the price that they're proposing is in line with that and then they that can go on for months or years in the us there is no second step once the drug is approved it's it's there and then as long as it's not like one of these um, alzheimer's drugs that we just had yeah it's usually reimbursed because it's an oncology drug or an important drug that's uh, for cardiology or something like that you know it's it's reimbursed and there is no second step that they need to go so this is not the fault of the pi or even the even in companies just like you know in big institutions the the medical affairs branch or the clinical development branch which is doing all the trials is very different from the economics or the you know who's marketing the drug and how and where it'll be marketed the people who are designing and doing the trial don't control if and when negotiations will be successful. So I think while it is true that a lot of these global trials, the approval comes and it benefits US patients mainly for the first you know, year or two, that's a fault of our pricing system, the US pricing system. It's not the fault of you know, pharma or the investigators involved in the randomized trial. I mean, there, there is a sense, and I see that sometimes on Twitter, on social media and, and elsewhere, and there's actually a couple of papers that were published on that, is that 
there are many randomized controlled trials that have a control arm that is inferior to what you would normally prescribe in the real world. And that is almost a ploy or gaming the system so we could get the new regimen approved. Do you agree with that statement or do you think it's not true? And again, it's, it's, it goes back to what I said, you know, if somebody was not aware of the purpose for the trial of the trial, then it's very easy for them to look at the control arm and make that, that judgment call. In the drugs that I've been involved with, um, if, usually it comes from the investigators that if we think bortezomib is active in myeloma, we're going to deny, we're going to design a trial that's the quickest way to get bortezomib approved. Because the longer the, that the trial takes, the longer patients all over the world will wait for the drug that we think will save lives. The more uh, patients it needs, the longer it'll take. The more complex the regimen you propose, the longer it'll take. So you take those factors and you decide, I really have this drug and I really need to show the FDA that it is effective and safe. You could then basically do like a placebo control trial. Forget a weak control arm. You could have a, a no control arm like we did with COVID vaccines, just placebo. Just take patients who have no other option and just give them bortezomib versus placebo because it'll, it'll solve the problem because without the trial, no one has access to the drug. The drug, as far as you're concerned, a priori is unproven. So you're really not withholding some effective therapy. And so you just, you could do like basically a placebo controlled trial, just like we did with the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine in the midst of a pandemic. We still had to do the phase three. So even placebo is an acceptable control when you're dealing with a drug that is completely unproven and you're just trying to get, demonstrate that it's safe and effective. In oncology, particularly when we as clinicians like you, for example, if you had 20 patients for whom you gave bortezomib and they all responded very nicely and did well, you didn't have a control arm, you would feel very uncomfortable doing a placebo control trial simply to prove the point. So then you say, okay, you know what? I can't do placebo, so I'll do bortezomib versus dexamethasone. That is what we did. That was the APEX trial. That's what got bortezomib approved. So someone could say, why did you do dexamethasone? That's weak. So the purpose of the trial has to be always taken into account. On the other hand, if your trial is a tactical trial where I am trying to decide, I have VRD, I have KRD, which of these two is better for my patient? I have DERA-RD and VRD, which of these two is better for my patient? Should I do CAR-T or transplant? There, the control arms both have to be reasonably good so that the, 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 the control arm has to be correct and good because you have to make sure because you're asking an important question that affects management of the patient. So I think a lot of the control arm issues comes from not understanding that the trial purpose was to get a drug on the market in some place in the world.
the designing and taking clinical trial from randomized control trial from concept for from inception to completion what's the average time what's the how long does it take <laughs> it depends on the trial chaddy um and what process it is and again it it's worthwhile going back to what i said if it's an industry funded trial an industry run trial it could be very short you can start a trial within six months of the idea and you could complete a trial within another six months to a year. That's how many of these drugs were approved with these with DARA or, you know, carfilzomib or things like that. Because they even even in industry, it's not that easy. I mean, the medical affairs or the clinical development branches of these companies have to go through a lot of paperwork and a lot of convincing to their higher ups because it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to do one of these trials. And so they have to really be sure that this is the right design that they're going to spend the hundreds of millions of dollars on, let alone if the trial flops and it's a billion dollar loss. So it's a very high stakes game, but at least they have an internal process. It's rigorous. And then they come up with the, with the idea and it could be done quickly. On the other hand, if it's a publicly funded trial like the ECOG trial, I'll give you a good example. You know, Sagar Lonial just published the lenalidomide versus observation trial in 2020. I wrote that trial in 2003. Okay. Wow. Before the Spanish even started their trial with lenalidomide. And I actually got rejected by CTEP that's lenalidomide is not a drug you would want to treat asymptomatic patients with. And this is not the right idea. And then we protested. And finally, we got the trial approved in 2006 or 2007. And then it took 10 plus years to accrue. And then we have to close the accrual and wait several more years to follow up these patients to see what happened. So depending on these trials, it can take a long time, but that's because myeloma is a rare disease. Smoldering myeloma is 10% or 15% of myeloma. So it takes a long time to do this. On the other hand, we have done publicly funded trials like ECOG where we did the dexamethasone study, um, that uh, high dose dex versus low dose dex. I think we, we opened the trial in 2000. I thought of the idea in 2003 and we published it by 2007. So four years from idea to opening to accrual to publication. So, um, and, and I, I won't take a lot of more of your time. I'm, I'm hoping that my calendar times are correct, but very short time is, yeah, is the yeah. basic idea. So, so I mean, you know, I think I see sometimes all of this back and forth on, on social media and Twitter and, 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 you know, I mean, there are, you know, there, there's back and forth always. There's no perfect world that we live in. I think we can always be humble and admit it's never, it's never easy to do that. But um, do you have to do a randomized control trial to be critical of randomized control trial? <laughs> so two things I'll tell you. First of all, I, I am a very ardent proponent of randomized trials, control trials, but I have done 10 and published them. 
and I've got three more that are running right now. So I have some perspective on what it takes to do one. And it's not that easy. It's very hard to do one of these. Plus, uh, I think the Institute, Institute of Medicine had done a study or done a survey, or, you know, for every hundred most important questions, we have funding to do hardly one randomized trial. So we have to really be careful about what we can and cannot do and be realistic about that. So that's, I will say that. And I think that's where I'm coming from. I think it's perfectly fine for somebody who has never done a randomized controlled trial to be harshly critical of a randomized controlled trial because it's their patients who get affected and they have to treat their patients and um, they are, they've got good intentions about what is right and what is not right in medicine. And there are a lot of randomized trials that are not done properly, that are not like we talked about, not right control arm, whatever. So I'm, I'm just not having a problem with people criticizing trials. All I'm saying is sometimes um, you don't want that to be your sole objective. Yeah. Um, it's, it helps to try and do these trials to get an understanding for what it takes. Uh, I would actually welcome if anyone who has not done a randomized trial wants to know what the process is from, you know, outside of industry, like, you know, not a pharma trial, but a publicly funded trial. Just have them email me or direct message me and I will have them attend our ECOG conference calls. I have right now in ECOG at least four or five myeloma investigators who have tried for the last 15 years to open one randomized trial. And they've all been vetoed by various steps of the pathway. Yeah. yeah. Even though yeah. they had good ideas, these are bright people. They have agreed to any, like I come up with a design and you tell me, no, Vincent, don't do it this way, do it this way. And they agreed to it. And then it goes somewhere else. And some five other people tell them something and they agree to all of that. And then you get a terse one-page letter saying, like, your trial was not approved. You know, I mean, the way I look at things is, is, is a little bit, um, it is simple. I mean, I always say, look, I always think of things similar to a patient coming into your clinic that does not have complete records. And you must make a clinical decision. I mean, you don't always have every piece of information that you desire to decide what you are going to do for this patient in the exam room in front of you. And sometimes you have to pontificate, use your clinical expertise, your, ju your judgment, and make a decision. And, you know, similar to that, there are no RCTs for every single clinical question. As much as I would like to see that, it's not there. So, you know, you have to make also clinical judgment in deciding how you're going to treat this patient despite the lack of RCTs that demonstrate or prove your theory of the best approach. Um, so, uh, I mean, the 100 to 1 ratio is, is probably spot on, and some people might argue it's probably uh, less than that. I mean, you know, there are more questions than 100 to 1 to be able to get in RCTs.
Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that's where the judgment call comes in, uh, in terms of recognizing, number one, that which is a question for which you really need a randomized control trial? And you have a lot of questions and you have to decide which one really needs one. And I have always insisted, for example, if you're going to um, tell patients with myeloma, you don't need a transplant, you need to show a randomized control trial. Or if you're going to tell somebody you need maintenance therapy, you need to show me, show me a randomized control trial with survival benefit. On the other hand, you know, Monday, Siltacel is going for FDA approval for the second CAR T in myeloma. We have patients who have exhausted their options and they really need some new treatment to prolong their life. I am not going to insist on a randomized control trial for the approval of Siltacel. So you need to know when you absolutely need one, when you can live without one, and when you can settle for something that's like in between where you go ahead with it like Dara and then wait for the randomized control trial to come later. So you, you do all of that together because we are living in a world where there's always not just a type one error. It's not always like, you know, I don't want to conclude something works when it actually doesn't. You always have to worry. I have cancer patients in front of me who really will die without treatment. And what is the chance I am telling them that this drug doesn't work or has not been proven to work and I'm wrong? Right, right. Where I conclude that this doesn't work or hasn't been proven to work when it actually does, I have to always keep that in mind. And that's a judgment call. And the judgment call comes usually with a real deep understanding of the disease. So I will not be able to tell you what is the best trial for lymphoma or diffuse large B cell lymphoma or follicular lymphoma or breast cancer? Because I don't, I lack that depth to know the history of the disease and the situation. It comes with deep expertise and it comes with a certain amount of experience in terms of doing these studies to know what's feasible and what's not and how long each will take. Vincent, before we, we, we end up the convert, this was great. Just like, you know, it's, I feel like it's a primer on RCTs. Anything else that you, maybe I forgot to ask you that you feel is important, you want to share with listeners, anything specific that we need to cover I may have uh, failed to discuss? No, I, I think you, we, we've covered a lot. And I think what I would tell listeners, if they are interested, they can read one particular paper that I'm um, proud of that is uh, Philippe Moreau, who's done more randomized trials than me. Uh, and I wrote for The Lancet um, called Translating Results to Reality for Myeloma um, uh, in The Lancet. And in that, we outline the problems we face, like, you know, having to choose when and when we can't do randomized trials, what the process is and also distinguishing between the various types of trials, the trials that are needed for a new drug approval, the trials that are needed for a new indication for an existing drug, the trials that are needed to outline what is the best course of action for treatment. You know, should I do maintenance or not? Should I do VRD or KRD? Should I do R-CHOP or R-squared CHOP? And then finally, strategic questions like, should I go for a cure? Should I do targeted therapy, uh, MRD-directed therapy, 
and 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 those kind of things how to approach those questions your listeners will get more information on the, uh, by reading that paper and there are a lot of good references also in there and i really think the the most one of the most important things i learned today is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater just at least ask the question why the trial was designed because based on the purpose of the trial it may be totally logical to continue that study despite the hypothetical possibility that it's no longer valid go back True. to the reason why the trial is there absolutely and and i think something that is really fundamental is just because we have the toyota camry we don't say we don't need the you know honda accord um, the more drugs that we have on the market for a given disease, the better it is for, from a cost and economic standpoint. There's a lot more competition and we hope that prices will come down. Now, people can be cynical and say that has not happened. Yeah, maybe it has not happened with various other things. But to be honest, I just saw that, you know, you can get imatinib for $17 a month now. So it will happen with time. And so... The fact that I have DARA doesn't mean I don't need carfilzomib. It doesn't mean I don't need erotuzumab. Even if there are two monoclonal antibodies targeting CD38 like DARA and isatuximab, it's good to have both. You know, Sanofi has actually lowered the price of uh, one compared to the other. And so there's reasons why it's okay to have two or three drugs. So people don't need to get worked up over, you know, I already have these three drugs. Why are they studying this new one? Okay, well, look, thank you so much, Vincent, uh, for your time. Really appreciate uh, this episode is being taped on the last day of February 2022. And I think it's going to air likely the last day of March uh, 2022. Vincent Rajkumar, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Thanks, Chatty, for having me. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Raj Kumar outlining the challenges of conducting, executing, and completing randomized controlled trials. I appreciate your support. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate you liking the show, subscribing to the show, and writing a brief review. You can let me know how well I'm doing or, come on, how bad I'm doing by direct message me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or by sending me an email through my website, www.chadinabhan.com. I'm very grateful for your support as always. And if you are a loyal listener and you enjoy the show, please direct message me and demand a free t-shirt, one of these free, amazing, excellent healthcare unfiltered t-shirts. They're perfect to work out at the gym or to run by the beach. If you don't really live by the beach, tough luck to you. What can I say? Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Albert Einstein. If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Until next time, take care.